If you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, and again, I think it bears reminding us that as the Apostle Luke writes this book, if you'd have left, you know, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and, you know, you find the the gospel has now made it to Rome, you would have kind of scratched your head. So remember that this book, the book of Acts, this second book written by the Apostle Luke, is really kind of Luke chapter 2, or or Luke book 2, if you will. And it's a story principally of how the gospel makes it to that third place. goes to Jerusalem, then to the surrounding area, and then really to the uttermost, and very specifically to the Gentile church. And so this is a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Because you remember the very beginning of the book of Acts, if you were with us, we find Pentecost, we find this incredible work that goes on there in the first century church in this original group that's gathered in this upper room, and the Holy Spirit blows through that room, sets those primarily Jewish believers on fire for the Lord, and they go out. And so it does reach the Jewish people first. They are the first converts. Those who first come to the Lord are almost exclusively Jews. And now we find, as we get to chapter 11, in chapter 10, we saw this incredible conversion of Cornelius, Cornelius, this Roman centurion, this man who's in the really the, the coastal city that is the capital. Uh, it's Herod's palace. Uh, this is a place that's entirely pagan for the most part. It's entirely Gentile. And, and, and so Peter uh, is fetched from Joppa, and he's now seen this incredible vision. And, and now the, the gospel is going to go forth into the Gentile world. But if you remember last time, as we studied chapter 10, there's a group of six guys who are Jewish men who've traveled with this emissary, this team, to go get Peter to, to share this good news with Cornelius. And so we pick up in chapter 11 now with this second part of the ministry of Peter and how from the salvation of Cornelius, we find the beginning, really, of the Gentile church, and the church now begins to grow. And it grows like wildfire. And one of the things that's a beautiful picture in this is because you have to remember how segregated these two societies were. Between the Jewish society and the Gentile society, there was literally a, a block wall. And, and they did not mingle socially. They did not mingle in, in fellowship They were generally, if one was on one side of the street, the other would go on the other side of the street. It it really was a very racially driven environment. And and that racism and, and that absolute hatred that had been built up over centuries, because remember, as the Jewish people came in, it, it meant something very specific to be of the tribes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were 12 tribes. If you were not in those 12, you were not Jewish. So when they entered the land, everyone else was either completely Gentile, as in non-Jewish, or they were a mixture of Jewish and Assyrian. That was the Samaritan people. So the Samaritans have now begun, begun to become, come to faith in Christ. And so what's left for the filling, remember, of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, to Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, all that's left is the Gentile church. 
as the church begins to expand. And so this is the record, and then we'll get to the, the Apostle Paul in his life next because he's going to be the chief vehicle through which this happens. But tonight we pick up in chapter 11 in verse 1. We'll try and cover the whole chapter tonight, 30 verses here. I think we can make it. And so let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, we thank you uh, for your word, your sure word, and we pray that you would now instruct us through it. Uh, Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would have to say. Holy Spirit, come and blow afresh upon us. Lord, though tonight we are few from the storm, but we are mighty and powerful in your name. And so we pray that you would do something exciting in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, And now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now, this is a major deal because for a very long period of time, the only group of people on the face of the planet who had God's word were the Jewish people. They had received the revelation of the law given to Moses. They had then followed with the five books of Moses that we call uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, those, those first original works, which include The Levitical law include the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Exodus, Genesis. And so this incredible picture of how God was going to work with mankind was handed to the Jews. And so the Jews had that. And so now they're hearing that the word of God has gone to the Gentiles. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, uh, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into an uncir- un- into uncircumcised men and you ate with them? This was an anathema. It was something that simply did not happen. And, and so, as is always true with our prejudices, they are very hard to overcome. And the prejudice that is here is that Jewish people believe they had an inside track with the Lord. And in understanding that, they, they could not understand how an uncircumcised Gentile would ever be able to receive what they had received from the Lord because God gave the Jewish people a sign, and that was the sign of the circumcision. So the male on the eighth day was circumcised, and if you were of the Jewish people, that happened to you, and if you were not, you were not God's chosen people. So they had a legitimate claim as to why they believed this way. It wasn't something that was just kind of out of nowhere. God had told them, this is how I will relate to you. And so this is a big deal that now Peter has gone and not just went in with them, which you didn't do, you didn't go into their home, but to accept the hospitality of sharing a meal was a huge deal. And so now there's fellowship actually happening with Gentiles, and that would have been a completely new experience. In essence, you had what the Jewish people believed were pagan people intermingling with people who, by Jewish tradition, if you wanted to become a Jew, you needed to to literally be circumcised, keep to the law and to the feasts, and and you had to, in essence, to become a believer, you kind of had to blend the two things together from their perspective. And so they're thinking, this just can't happen. And no sooner had Peter returned to Jerusalem, he's met by members uh, of this strong legalistic party of the church. And, and whenever you have doctrinal issues within the church, they're hard to get rid of. They're ingrained over long periods of time. And even though the church was new, 
the church had already taken a very Hebrew flavor, if you will. And so the church was like, well, we're not really going to let go of the law. We're not going to let go of the feast days. And in fact, if you travel to Israel today, one of the things that you will find is most Christian churches in Israel are Messianic congregations. And by and large, they still keep kosher. They still keep a measure of the law. There, there is a, a still to this day, there is still kind of a flavor of being a Hebrew and also being a Christian. Matter of fact, our tour guide that, we, that's, that joins us is when we travel to Israel, Amir, actually keeps kosher. So you sit down and eat dinner with him. He will say, well, hey, Shabbat's going to start tomorrow. And so I'm going to be keeping kosher that whole time. And he will abstain from the foods he needs to abstain from, even though he's a believer in Christ Jesus. So it still even lingers today, some 2,000 years later, that it's hard because it was their full life. It was their culture. And the reason I'm sharing this, it's important for us to understand some of the, some of the reasoning be, behind why this was so difficult. You're talking about losing your family. My, my dear friend, Jeff Dorman, who is a, he was a Jewish man, he was raised in, a, in an Orthodox Hebrew home, uh, he went to Torah school. He did all of those things. When he accepted Christ, he was completely disinherited by his father for receiving Christ. It's a big deal. So when you hear of this so close to the time that Christ actually was walking on this earth, it would have been an infinitely much harder thing then because there was no history. There was zero history of the Gentiles having any favor from God. And so that would have had to have been overcome. And that's the position that we find these, these believers in as the story begins to unfold. And so the news of this event of Peter, you know, coming from Jaffa, and then he shares the story, which he's going to share again. So important is that, is that story that we saw in chapter 10. He tells it again here in chapter 11 because it would have been unthinkable and unbelievable to the Jewish people. And so it becomes his chief witness. Look, I, God sent an angel. to This is what I saw. And so it's repeated for emphasis. And that founding work that we're going to see in this church is going to be uh, in four parts. We'll get to a couple of them here in chapter 11, then a few more, uh, two more as we get into chapter 12. But this detailed explanation of what goes on in the, in the Jerusalem church, they're, they're beginning to kind of accept this new group of people called the Gentiles that are actually somehow by grace they're linked together. It's such a beautiful picture of us with all of our diversity and, and all of the different cultural places and climates that we come from, the things that we understand, how God through one man, Christ Jesus, through his life as our Savior, what he did on the cross was joined all of us with all of that diversity. He made us into one body. And that's exactly why the Apostle Paul wrote that in Ephesians 4. There is only one body, and it's made up of every single type of person there is on the planet. We've all been brought together by that grace. And so he goes on to say, look, you entered the home of a Gentile, you even ate with them. They, they had no idea what was going on at that time. And so 
much like we would have in many groups today. If, if you were in one group and you thought you were right, and another group thought they were right, and you got together, there'd be a time of kind of not trusting each other. And that's exactly what we find here uh, in chapter 11. Mark Twain said it, said it well. It said a lie can travel half around the world while the truth is putting its shoes on. You know, when people make assumptions about other people and they say things, when when someone believes something about you, that's why the slandering of someone's character is so horrific. Because what you say, even though it may not be true, can affect that person's life for a very long period of time. And here, especially in the state of California, if you make an accusation against somebody for something, say, like child molestation, they can be in jail, imprisoned, and, and have spent time there before the truth is made known. And, and so there were things being said about the Gentile Christians, and there were things being said about the Jewish Christians that, that caused them to think ill of each other. And so the message to us is be careful what you say about other believers because it takes a long time for that truth to get back around to begin to unwind those things that have perhaps been said in haste and undoubtedly have been said that are false. Be very careful about what you say about your brothers and sisters in the Lord. This entire gathering was, was really influential people in the, in the early church. And so what happens with people who have a critical spirit, and they're on both sides, and I think it's important to recognize this, the church in Jerusalem, the founding church, primarily Jewish, and the church that's going to come, that kind of gets founded in Caesarea and, and begins there with Cornelius and then spreads out, they're going to think things about each other. And this is almost true. People who have a critical spirit do their criticizing before they find out the facts. Find out the facts before you do any criticizing. Make sure that you know what you know before you speak on it. We, we want to suspend that judgment and our final assessment in, in all of those things that we are uncertain of. And so as we begin to, to look at what's going on here, there, there's kind of some growing pains that go on. And so Peter returns, he's not quite, you know, they're not really trusting each other. There's all kinds of things that are going on. And as Cornelius is converted to Christ, these believers that they're just shocked that Peter would do such a thing. And so keep that in view as you see the rest of this passage. Because it is, it is not unreasonable what they're thinking. We, we have the full word of God, and so we kind of look at it as almost, well, why would they think that? You know, didn't grace cover all of that? Remember, they weren't carrying around the New Testament yet. Most of the books of the Bible weren't even written yet. And so they have partial and limited knowledge, whereas we have the completed word of God. And so we're going to get some lessons here that we can cling to as we look at the rest of this passage. Pick up in verse 4 now. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. So he's going to recount this story of what happened in Jaffa. He says it almost word for word. He adds a couple of details. And that's not because this one is different. It's because he's giving them a couple of extra pieces just to remind them and chew on them. And Peter explained it from the beginning saying, I was in the city of Jaffa and I was praying. I was in a trance and I saw a vision. 
and an object descending like a great sheet. It was let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came to me. In other words, it floats down and basically gets in Peter's face. He sees this clearly. And, and the reason that that closeness is noted, I believe, in both texts, in both chapter 10 and 11, is there was no mistaking what he saw. It was clear. It wasn't kind of like a little desert mirage where you're not quite sure. It was clear what was in there. And when I observed it intently and considered, in other words, he's able to gaze on it, stare at it, inspect it, make absolutely certain what's in there, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so he's going to recount this whole story of what happened to him. And there's several things, really five of them, that we'll look at. And, and the first among them, much like J.B. Phillips reminds us, is the case If words are to enter the hearts of men and bear fruit, they have to be the right words, shaped cunningly to pass men's defenses and then explode silently behind the scenes and effectually within their minds. And so Peter is trying to get this stuff inside of them so that it can do some work. You kind of have to be careful how you make that initial foray into people's hearts and minds. And so Peter's being very tactful. He gives Careful communication is the first thing that we can see. This turn of events would have been surprising. And when you make a detailed account, it takes more time. I think too much of our our country, because we live so much by social media and tweets and very short, partial sentences. We don't use proper grammar or English anymore. It seems like you can just, you know, I've noticed anybody else hate autocorrect on your cell phone? You know, you're like, it's just like and, and, and you hit send on a text, you realize you, you know, half the words are, are other words than what you intended because you got like four letters into it and it just automatically populated it with something that you didn't intend. You, you, you see, we need to be careful with communication and select words that takes effort, that takes energy, and that takes time. And so Peter is using effort and energy and time to be careful with this communication. Peter worked very hard to promote peace. He was trying to be a peacemaker. For blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. We, we want to be peacemakers. And Peter was doing that. It's the mark of a believer. Anybody can make an argument. Anybody can separate people. You can say the most odd, bizarre things, and you're going to drive people crazy, and they'll separate. But it takes time to draw people together, especially people who don't like each other. And they actually have some good reasons that they don't like each other. One of the secrets to biblical counseling is being a good listener. You have to sit down. You have to listen to what people are saying. You need to get to the bottom of both sides. And then slowly, calculatedly, you have to give Good counsel, and it takes time. Wise selection of words. You, you let people sort through the details. You make sure that those words get somewhere before you bury them with more words. That's what Peter's doing here. And he goes on in verse 8, and he said, But I said, Not so, Lord. Look, I, I'm just not doing it. These things are unclean. For nothing common. Or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. He says, I have kept as best as I possibly can your law, Lord. You gave us your laws. 
And I've kept them. But the voice answered again to me from heaven and said, God speaks to him. Jesus speaks right to his face. If you have a red letter Bible, those words may actually be in red. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. He's saying, look, I'm trying to teach you a lesson here. And I'm using food as the illustration. Of course, you knew previously that these things were unclean. And see, God is the one that had actually told the Jewish people that the Gentiles were unclean. That originally came from God. He said, these are pagan peoples. Do not associate with them. And in fact, God had actually given the commands under Joshua to make sure you don't let any of them live in your land because they are unclean. And so this is a huge deal. And Peter had to learn that lesson. And then Peter needed to pass along that lesson exactly as he learned it. One of the things that happens when you're an assisting pastor, which I had the privilege of being an assisting pastor to Pastor Chuck for almost a quarter of a century, is you learn that one of the great things that an assistant must do is pass along anything that is said to you with the same veracity with which it was said to you. In other words, if someone comes and says, like Pastor Chuck, say, well, you know, I think we should paint the camp purple, you can't go up to the people and go, well, you know, Pastor Chuck said we should paint it purple. You have to say it with the same veracity that you received it because it needs to come from you. If you're passing along something that has been passed to you, especially when it comes from the Lord, you need to tell the people the way it was spoken to you. Peter does that. Peter's saying, look, the Lord said this to me. And the Lord said to me, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. He's giving it the same emphasis. And now this was done three times. And all were drawn up again into heaven. So Peter repeats this for his audience. He gives them, he said, look, I, I refuse to kill and eat. These animals were instructed by the law. I'm not supposed to touch them. I'm not going to do it. But God spoke again to me. I'm fighting the same thing everybody else has got. God spoke again to him and said, look, the Lord told me that he had cleaned this and it was good. And so now there's a, there's a new paradigm that's been set. And instead of there being clean and unclean, it all been joined by grace. And God had removed that restriction and said, look, it's Okay. And it really applied more than anything else, not to the animals, not to the food, not to whether you were keeping kosher or not, but whether there was pagan peoples who were Gentiles and those people who were right in the sight of God, the Jewish people, they were now one in Christ. The same Lord was Lord of all. And so there wasn't Gentiles and Jews in that sense. There were simply believers. And they all stood in the grace of God. And so Peter was trying to tell them that word. The second thing that we see is we, we need to listen to the full counsel of God. You know, Malachi's statement in Malachi chapter 1, he's talking about Abraham, a very specific thing. He says, my name will be great among the nations from the rising, uh, from the rising to the setting of the sun. He, he's talking about, look, here's, here's Abraham, and his name's going to be great. So that all the way to the end of the prophets... There was this picture that the Jewish people were very special to God and to mankind. And so 
these were hard things for them to, to get through. And yet, as we look at this next thing, he says, look, verse 11, at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me, circle the word Spirit, underline it, the Spirit, the Spirit of God is working now. Remember what happened to the Jewish church. The Spirit came upon them. The Spirit is now going to start working in the Gentile church as well. The Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. And moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Peter's recounting the timing. He's given them the whole story. And he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit did this. This is, this is not a work of man. This isn't something I made up. He is basically saying, look, God said so. And by Jewish law, you only had to have two witnesses to any event in order to make sure that it was true and factual. And in this case, God sends three times as many witnesses as are necessary so they could all one right after another. We're not told whether they did this or not, but they could have all one right after another. Yep, we were there, we saw it. We heard the same word. That is what happened. And so the third thing that we see is God knows the significance of all of the events and he, and he calls things out, he sees things and then does them correctly. Verse 13 and 14. And then he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Jaffa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you your words by which you and all your household will be saved. God knows exactly what to say and when to say it. He knows, he knows who to say it to. He knows who to bring into the picture. He knows what to do at any given time. And so Peter, though he adds a couple of things to his experience here just for, for emphasis, what was being said to these men was sufficient to cause them to believe that the message that had been sent to them came directly from God. And from that, people came to faith in Christ Verse 15, notice what it says. And as, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us in the beginning. The beginning he's talking about is Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost, Peter was there for that as well. He says, I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Upon who? Gentiles. It's like, oh my goodness. It fell upon Jewish believers first. Now the same Holy Spirit that fell upon us has fallen upon the Gentiles. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, and remember that word was given to the disciples, specifically to those who would later be called apostles. Remember the word of the Lord and how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, God gave them, check this out, the same gift he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, who was, that I, who was I that I could withstand God. You see, Peter's still saying, well, look, I'm, I'm Hebrew, I'm a Jewish man, and I was there at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit came upon us, but that same Holy Spirit has now come upon the Gentiles. And who am I to disagree with God? God knows exactly what he wants to do and when he wants to do it. These events parallel that Pentecost story. And the next thing that we really see in all of this is that God doesn't play favorites. 
God doesn't have a, one group that's more chosen than another group. He just has his children. And his children are all called in that grace that God calls each of us in. And that's why John baptized with water. If you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, what he's really saying was there's only one way to be baptized. And anyone who is one of God's children ultimately have the same experiences. Jesus had demonstrated very concisely with his message that the gospel would be preached in Samaria, it would be preached to the Greeks. He went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and preached to them there. And he even reached out to the Romans. And so there, there was no favorites with God in that sense. In verse 18, he goes on. He said, and when they had heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now you're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Gentiles are filled with the Holy Spirit, and Gentiles can be renewed again unto eternal life. They can have repentance. They're praising God. Like, listen to this. This is amazing. You see, not only was God not playing favorites, he was making everyone equal. And so we should be praising God for these types of things. And I think when they heard that story, I wonder how pierced their hearts were. I wonder what they began to think about at that time. What, they, what was actually going through their minds? They're listening to this. It's like, man, we had this special relationship with God, and now God has kind of equaled the playing field, and he's, he's brought everyone in. And they kind of had to overcome that, that God inertia, if you will, of being God's chosen people. They kind of, there, there's this effect of all the things that God had done throughout history. And it culminates, and it kind of, at the cross, it changes, and it goes from you know, one group of people who are selected by God, who in all of the earth are the only ones that are God's chosen people, to God throwing his arms open wide and saying, as many as will come. Anyone who wants to believe can. I'm desiring for all men to be saved. And once the Jewish believers heard this full story from Peter about the salvation of the Gentiles, they, they began to praise the Lord. They became silent. And they began to say, Look, then God is all... It's like they're shouting. It's like, then God has given everyone the ability to be saved. To come to Repentance. You see, that was an impossibility before Jesus died on the cross. Couldn't happen. It actually couldn't happen for the Jewish people, but they thought it could. And Christ brought everyone together. And so we see the Gentile church come on the scene. handful of things left for us uh, in this passage tonight. And we really see kind of the genesis uh, of the Gentile church and how it actually begins here in uh, verses 19 and 21. And now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. Now notice, as you, as you look at us, if we were to put up a map right now, you would look and you would see that this is really looking north. And so Jerusalem being in the south, and, and you would you would go up the coast, out to Jaffa, to the sea coast, and then up to Caesarea. Uh, you'd travel that extra 35 miles or so uh, up to Caesarea. And then from there, you would normally catch ships along the 
coast, which would be partly modern-day Israel, and then you would move into Syria, and then up along the coast, and you'd touch parts of Turkey, and then around to, to Greece, and then around the Grecian Peninsula and over to Rome. And so you would travel that way. And so you can kind of see what's going on here as far as Phoenicia. So this is north to Cyprus. That's 65 or so miles off the coast to Antioch, that's nearly 200 miles north, preaching the word to no one but to the Jews only. So they scatter out and they're preaching the word, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists. Now these are Greek-speaking Jews. And so the Hellenists are now being reached, and they're preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so the same persecution that Saul of Tarsus had taken and scattered north uh, up into Syria, and so now we see uh, the, the word going out into Samaria, we see it going to Caesarea, we see it going to Damascus, we see it going to Lydda, we see it going to Jaffa, to the plains of Sharon, there on the coastal plain. At the same time, that church in the far north is being planted among the Gentiles. They're with the Hellenists, with the Jewish people, but largely influenced by the Greek. And so the message is beginning to explode throughout what was the, what was the, the Grecian and Roman world. They would have passed through Tyre and Sidon. Uh, they would have gone out on ship to the island of Cyprus and traveled all the way approximately 200 miles north of actually of Sidon, which is in modern-day Lebanon. Uh, they, they would have reached that furthest extent north. And, and the thing that's really interesting to me is that when you look at all these cities, as you traveled north, it got more and more carnal and more and more immoral. Uh, so much so that it was like, uh, we're going to go to the worst spots that we can possibly go because they need the most help. And, and it seems interesting, but it is actually true that at times people who are the most desperate are also the most open to hear the word of truth. When you have been doing something over and over again and it does not fill that void that's in your heart, it doesn't fill the hole that's there, you can't stuff enough alcohol or enough drugs or enough relationships in there or enough false religion. You can't get enough intellectualism in there. You, you, you can't find a way to satisfy that longing that God has put in every human heart. The, the worse it gets, sometimes the more open people are to the truth. It's like, look, I've tried everything else. And that was the truth here. As, as, the, as the mold of the church is kind of now going to be broken. And this is really, really important for us. You see, every church along the way did not necessarily look like the previous church. Each one of these areas had its own types of issues and problems. And there was some cultural relevance that was necessary to be able to reach the groups that they were now ministering to. The church in Jerusalem would have been decidedly Jewish. It's the home of the temple. There it is on the temple mount. It still was standing. It wouldn't be destroyed uh, for another 35 years or so. 
And so th- that would have been decidedly Jewish in flavor. But as you're traveling north, guess what? It's going to be decidedly Greek in flavor. And as you get a little further north, it's going to be decidedly Macedonian in flavor. And as you get a little further north and you start to head a little bit towards the west, it's going to get very Roman in flavor. And each stop along the way, the Lord is bringing people to faith in Christ who can minister to those individuals. And why is that important to us? Because we still have the same exact issue in our world today. We need to send people who can minister within the cultural construct of the place that we've put them. One of the things I can tell you has been an immense failure of the church is very often we try and build an American church in in a foreign culture, and it simply does not work long term. That church has to take on the cultural construct of the people that's that whose lives they're trying to minister to. One of the things that's very interesting when you're being translated, especially when it's a multilingual translation, which I've done and I'm going to do this coming week. I'll be in Nicaragua. And so primarily into Spanish and that you, you can't use American slang. You can't use American today. I have no idea what a freeway is. You talk, talk about a freeway. They're like, what? A free hump? Is that like, you know, it's like free holes? Is it freeway? What is that? You know, we don't, we don't, they don't know. There's no freeways in Nicaragua. Now, if you talk to them about colonial architecture, they've got lots of that. So there needs to be an attention to the detail of the people that you're trying to minister to. And so as the church spreads out, it does that. They're going to go to a place that's full of pagan worship and sexual immorality. So bad was it in that area of the world at the Roman satirist Juvenal, when he wanted to kind of, you know, poke his finger in the eye of Caesar, he, he would say that the, the Greek river, the Orontes, when it, when it came from Antioch and when it dumped into the Tiber River, which was near Rome, when those two things went together, all of the trash of Greece went to Rome. There was a sense that those cultural deficiencies were being passed on from nation to nation to nation, from, from people to people. And, and so... There was, again, kind of, well, we're Romans. Oh, yeah, well, we're Greeks. Well, we're Phoenicians. Well, we're Hebrews. People have always been kind of divided over those types of things. The one thing that brought them together was faith in Christ. Because they were one body. They were one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism. And so the church begins to grow and it says there in verse 22, and then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So now you can kind of see it coming full circle. And so the word's gone out. It's reached to the northern extremes of Greece. It's in modern-day Turkey. It's in Asia Minor. It's in the southern reaches of Macedonia. The empire of King Philip the Macedon it would become the Greek empire. And it's bleeding over already into Rome. And we'll pick up Rome with the Apostle Paul. And so it will go there to the seat of the, the government, really, of the known world at that time. And it came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they're hearing how the word has gotten out, and it started there in Jerusalem. And, and so they sent Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And so he makes this journey. Now, this is going to be probably a month-long journey to travel to Antioch at that time, unless he got on a ship and took a ship. It might have been a, a couple of weeks. But when he came and he had seen, notice this, the grace of God, he was glad. Notice it doesn't say when he 
came and he saw the church looking exactly like it looked in Jerusalem. Notice he doesn't say when he came and he saw everybody speaking the same language the same way and having some kind of book where they could all identify exactly with the church in Jerusalem. He was glad. It says when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. Brothers and sisters, the uniting factor of the Christian faith is the grace of God lived out in love in the lives of believers. When we portray God's grace, we live in God's grace, when we share God's grace, that transcends cultural differences. That transitions language. That transitions over all of the things that would divide us. The grace of God is greater than all of our sin. It's greater than the things that divide us. And he was glad and encouraged them all with the purpose of heart that they should continue, notice this, not with the people that founded the church that they were attending, but in the Lord. You see, when the church grows, it's God's church. When the church grows, it's God's grace. When the church grows, people continue in the Lord, not in a specific style of ministry. We worship the Lord. We don't worship a style of ministry. We're blessed to be Calvary Chapel, but we don't worship a style of ministry. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And Him alone do we worship. To Him alone do we give honor. It is His grace that saves. It's not a style of ministry. It's not a language that we speak. It is the grace of God in men's hearts. And so this Hellenist revival that begins... Prompted by the leaders of the Jerusalem church, they send someone to investigate. And Barnabas is this guy. And he shows up. And he, everyone knows his name means son of encouragement. And, and it shows a wonderful gift that I think most Christians ought to try and exercise in their lives more frequently. And if you have it, uh, use it more than you currently use it. Barnabas was willing to stick his neck out. Barnabas was willing to go where people didn't want to go. Barnabas was willing to leave the safety of the church in Jerusalem, which is the mother church, to go to these church plants that were someplace else and encourage them. We need more people like Barnabas. People who will encourage and, and go maybe not to the most famous places, not the most beautiful places, but go where people need encouragement and encourage them. He was a parakleai in that sense. That means one who comes alongside. Of many who come alongside. He can, he can carry uh, that comfort. He can carry that encouragement with him. He can take that help. He can give a strong urging. He can give counsel. All those kind of things. That was what Barnabas did. You see, the church still needs encouragement. And I believe it's one of the highest duties that we have as a, as a, as a member of the body of Christ. Too many people in the world, in the church, exercise the gift of discouragement. They, they have a negative thought about all kinds of things, and they're very willing to, to speak those negative things. And it's interesting, the people that generally do that don't have a solution for anything. They, they just want to tell you what's wrong. That is the gift of discouragement. No one needs that gift. And if you've got it, ask God to take it from you. 
Because it absolutely is the bane of the, of the church's existence. We all know we're failures. We all, we all know that things aren't perfect in each of our lives individually. And there is no perfect church. You know, sometimes people will talk and, and know, you know, oh, I just love this church. And then they follow it, but. And I always know something's coming when the but comes. Oh, I love this church, but. A lot of church is subjective. Do you know that? It's not objective. It just happens to be the way this church looks. And we're not perfect. No church is. So don't expect church to be perfect. Be a part of the solution. Don't just be one that points out the faults and the weaknesses. If you see a weakness, do what Barnabas would have done. He would have come along and encouraged and lifted up and said, hey, this isn't quite working. Can I help with it? Not this isn't quite working. Man, you guys are really terrible. Be an encourager. And it tells us kind of some characteristics here in verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, He was a good man. That means his basic character was good. God was working with a man whose character was good. But he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. You see, if you will simply do a couple of things well, be a basic decent person. Just simply be a basic decent person. Be kind. Be generous. Be effectual. Do do some things to aid other people. Be a good person. And then ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit, to give you what you need, to do whatever it is that he wants you to do. That extra, that dunamis, that power that God alone can place in your life. And then also possess some faith. Say, look, I believe that faith is the substance of things hoped for and yet not seen. You, you see, if you live that way, God can use you almost anywhere. Two of these same characteristics are, by the way, exactly what we're used to describe Stephen. You, you see, we need more people to encourage that are just basically good people. Love the Lord. Pray for the Holy Spirit to fill them. And then do something with it by faith. Verse 25, he goes on, and then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. So the church is blowing up. The church is growing. And it's a simple thing. It's not a complex thing. There was no major plan. Nobody sat down. What's interesting in the book of Acts, there's no like one-year plan and five-year plan and ten-year plan. There weren't a bunch of officers of the corporation. There were just people who were good people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and were of faith, and they went and did what God told them to do. One of the great stories of Calvary Chapel is that's pretty much who we are. We just truly believe that God still works in the hearts of people, that he wants to use people, that if someone is filled with the Holy Spirit and possesses some faith, God can use them anywhere to do anything. And you turn people loose to go do what God's called them to do. It's a very simple model, and it's found here. But now Barnabas departs for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So he goes a bit further north to Tarsus and brings him to Antioch. 
And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And so up to this time, they're disciples, they're believers, they're people of the way, they're they're the disciples of Christ, they're they're called all kinds of things. But here's the first mention uh, of the term Christian. And it really means Christ ones, or it can mean those ones who are of the anointed one who belong, or who belong to the party of the anointed one. In other words, we're kind of Christians first, above everything else. It's also our party. It's who we are as, as children of God. Above everything else, we're Christians. We're Christian Americans. We're, we're Christians in the voting booth. We're Christians at the job. We are of the party of Christ is the way to look at it. It takes precedence over everything. When you say you're a Christian, you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. He's first and foremost. It's like you pull out your passport, and we have a U.S. passport, but above that we have a heavenly passport that says, I am of Christ. The Lord is first. And that's how come we're brothers. That's how come we're sisters. That's how how come we're disciples of Christ. That's why we're also saints. Those who are called out, set apart. All of those things are tied directly to being actually Christians. And so the church in Antioch becomes this kind of a a mega church. And it, it is a young church. It's a church that's on the move. It's a church that's going places. And ultimately, it begins to become so powerful that it's going to take up a collection and it's going to send it back to Jerusalem because the mother church is basically struggling a little bit. And so we see the, the church begin and we see it begin to grow. And then we'll see in a moment uh, the, the church as it, as it exercises its generosity. Notice verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And again, when you see the word prophet, keep it in its proper context. It's not talking about the Old Testament prophet. I believe in this case, it's speaking forth the word of God. That's another uh, variation of how we use the word prophet. And so they're not rewriting scripture. They're not saying something that's additional to. They're simply speaking forth the word of God. The word prophet can mean forth teller as well. In other words, something that you have received. In other words, I'll tell you how you can all become prophets. You pick this up and you read it to somebody. You're speaking forth the word of God into their life. That actually is part of the gift of prophecy. The Old Testament prophets were given specific words from God directly to them to give to people. But you exercise the prophetic word when you speak forth the word of God into people's lives. And so I believe that what's in view here is they were speaking forth the word as they went. And in these days, prophets came from Antioch or from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then one of them named Agabus stood up and and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine. So now he's actually using the gift of prophecy. 
And so he's actually going to speak forth something new for them, that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And by the way, that is a very well-documented famine. that happened between AD 41 and 54. There was a famine in almost what we call the entirety of the Middle East and Asia, and millions of people actually died in that famine during the rule of Emperor Claudius. And so we see the church grow and we see it become uh, very solid in the way it works. And there are some things here that we can see in this entirety of chapter 11 that gives us some characteristics of a usable church. And I want to share these with you. I've kind of been into the whole acrostic thing lately. So uh, here's the word usable. And here's some verses that you can look at. First, to be usable is to be unstained by our culture. We see that in verses 19, 20, 22, and 26. To be unstained by our culture. We we don't want to be affected by the culture. We want to affect the culture. So as these churches are planted in these pagan areas, here's what happens. The church changed the culture. They were unstained. They didn't go in and get changed by the culture. They actually affected the culture in which they live. So they were unstained by our culture. Another thing that we see, it's, it's necessary, it's found in the word faith, verse 19, and we'll see it again in chapter 12, by the way. We're, we're stretched to our limits. You see, we don't really find God until we run out of ourselves. We don't really find God until we run out of ourselves. Because until you run out of yourself, you could actually still be just yourself. But when you run out of yourself, when you're stretched to your limits, when there's nothing left of you, you have to then be dependent upon God. And so you get stretched to your limits. You go to some place that you would not be able to go on your own strength, and you need the Lord. Like one of the beauties of living a life of faith is trying new things that you really don't have any great confidence that in your own flesh you can accomplish. Because it is there that you find God. You're stretched to your limits. The third thing, the A there in, in this simple acronym, is we need to adhere to the same. We need to stick to Jesus. We need to stick to the Word. We need to be close to the Lord. And, and as you think about that, that means keeping it simple. Too often church becomes something that God never intended. And we make it really complex. We need to stick to the Lord. Stick to the word. The B here in in the word usable is being bold in our witness. These guys weren't waiting around for somebody to give them some type of church planting mission. They were going on the street corner. They were going in the cities. They were going to the places that they were unpopular. They were being persecuted for it. They were being bold in their witness. They didn't care what people thought. They didn't care what people said. They just went. And for us to be usable, we need to be bold. Because if you're afraid of everything, you're not going to be horribly usable to the Lord. doesn't mean you'll be useless, but you are more usable to the Lord when you have some boldness. You're willing to make a fool out of yourself. You're willing to go where maybe others won't. You're, you're willing to trust God in boldness. The all there. Being liberal in our giving. And we see it multiple times in this chapter to where one church is taking up an offering for another church and supporting other believers. Man, can you imagine if all of the churches 
got together and accomplished the work of the Lord as a unified whole instead of, well, this is ours. It's one of the things we've set out to do in this church. We're now supporting something on the order of 40 different churches around the world, in our own local area. Other churches that aren't this church. And there is not a thing in it for us, folks. We're not asking them to send back their tithes and their offerings to here. We're just simply saying, we heard you have a need, and we have the capacity to meet it, and here it is. This is from Jesus to you. That's the way the church is supposed to function. When we do these missions, like I'm going to do on Wednesday, we're going down to support a conference that's down there. I'm teaching at that conference. We are actually paying for those pastors to come to that conference. We're not charging them to be there. We're paying for them to be there so that they can get blessed and they can get refreshed and built up. We need to be liberal in our giving. Hang on to things lightly because if we need more and we're generous, it doesn't stick in our hands. We can be a vehicle through which it passes. God will give us more to give out. But if it sticks here, he'll stop giving it to us. If it's just for us to build up more here, he'll stop giving it to us. He will only give when we continue to give as well. When we tithe of the things that the Lord does here to other ministries and to other churches and to other works that God is doing around the world, when we do that, God will continue to pour out his blessings upon us. We are living liberal in our giving. And then finally, equipped in the scriptures. It's what we do here. You know, one of the reasons we're in three different books of the New Testament right now is to equip the body of Christ in the Scriptures. To get us all thinking in a biblical mindset, in a biblical framework. To have our minds transformed by the renewing of them through the Word of God. That faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, that's how you get God ears. That's how you learn to see with biblical eyes as you get equipped in the scriptures. So to be usable, unstained by our culture, stretched to our limits, adhering to the Savior, bold in our witness, liberal in our giving, and equipped with the scriptures. That's the kind of church we want to be. As this passage closes, we see that. And then the disciples, verse 29 says, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Do you see all those things kind of at work almost in these two verses? They heard the word of the Lord. They acted on it. They were bold. They were sticking to what God had said. And this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. They equipped the saints. They didn't let the culture drag them down and and keep them where they were. They, they, they weren't trusting in some major bank account. They said, look, we see the need. We'll, we'll just trust God for it. And so we want to be a usable church. We want to be like the first century church, a church that that trusts the Lord, a church that's stretched a little bit, a church that's bold in how we go about witnessing for Christ, and it ultimately is liberal in taking care of other people's needs and equipped in the fullness of the Scriptures. Amen? Would you stand? Anthony's going to come back out with the worship team. It's a little late. It's a little wet. So we're going to close in song. I'm going to bring a few pastors up. And once we close in song, if you need to be 
prayed for. If you'd like to be prayed for, we're going to have some pastors down front, but we're going to dismiss uh, after we sing this last worship song. So those of you that need to go, maybe you've got flooded streets, you can, you can get there and pick up your kids. But let's be usable, amen? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we pray, Lord, that as we uh, commit our way to you, that, God, you'd keep us unstained by this world. Lord, that you would, in fact, stretch us a little bit, even to our limits, where we get past ourselves and we uh, find that place where we need you. Lord, we would also pray that we would be sticking to adhering to the Lord Jesus. We're so grateful, God, for that faith that saves, and we pray that faith that saves would keep. Lord, we pray that you would make us bold. When we share the gospel, would it be something that we thrive in doing, that we look forward to it, Lord? Uh, Help us to be generous, liberal in in the way that we give of ourselves and our resources. And God, we pray that you'd equip us with the scriptures. We love you, we praise you, we bless you, and we ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus and God's people all said, amen.